Um, coming up this next month, we have uh, a, a kind of a full but divided weekend. We have a special ladies retreat, so if ladies, you have a friend in mind or if you have time, uh, we have made this a, just a great getaway weekend for renewal and community. So I would encourage you to just go online and sign up so we can sort of make some more arrangements and let us know that you're coming. And then we're doing a guys uh, and kids event on that Saturday. So uh, we won't leave um, dads in particular empty handed without something to do, uh, something fun. Uh, and then uh, I was just going to highlight, we are combining, I have a growing friendship with a couple of pastors here in Central Austin, and so we have yet to have done a Good Friday service, but with these friends, uh, and they are kind of pastors of other small churches, but we're going to get together uh, at Brentwood Bible Church, which is right in the Brentwood neighborhood uh, off of uh, 2222, and we're going to have a time where we get together for a Good Friday service. So if you want to mark your calendar and be a part of that Good Friday service to sort of envelope our weekend uh, celebrating the resurrection, that would be great. Okay, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the idea of soft power. Has anyone heard that phrase before, soft power? It is a, uh, an idea that's being populated more and more, and it's to be contrasted with hard power. Hard power would be what you would expect from um, someone who has might and strength. So when you speak of hard versus soft power, government would have hard power because they have the ability to have the strongest military, at least the U.S. does. Um, but there's something that is largely, uh, maybe arguably more influential, and that is this notion of soft power. And soft power is things that are, are more persuasive uh, rather than coercive. It's the idea of appeal and attraction to shape people's preferences and even their beliefs and convictions. So maybe the way you can think about it is Hollywood would have a great, be a great example of um, this kind of soft power. I mean, the city of angels, the city of messengers is shaping a cultural narrative. And if you start to watch movies that, and see sort of themes and, and sort of um, pictures that are, are coming into, and, and it's kind of mainstream in a whole new, wow, I never used to see it that way. Or I don't believe that, but I can't believe they're saying that now. That's the kind of influence that gets exercised through soft power. Maybe in a military or a government situation would be a presidential visit to a country to, to talk about economic trade would be soft power. A country that, that d decides on having sanctions would be hard power. You see how all this starts to play out. In fact, you also can see about it playing out in our elections and the alleged interference of different uh, different. Um, maybe uh, uh, not so well-meaning foreign agents, right? So this is kind of what's gone on in meddling with the U.S. election process and things like that. I was listening to a podcast called This Cultural Moment. Mark Sayers uh, has a wonderful commentary on lots of things. He's super well-read. But he was telling these stories, these anecdotes of how soft power was getting exercised. And I thought it was fascinating. And he talked about how um, Vladimir Putin... Uh, is a judo master. Kind of funny. And all the people that occupy his cabinet were a part of his dojo, his practice. They all learned the art of judo. And if you know anything about judo, judo uses the enemy's force against themselves. So think about what that might mean for the U.S. There have been agents, Russian agents, that have created things 
or maybe poured gasoline on things that already exist. So we are a flawed country. We are flawed people groups. But they have acted um, sort of against us, not with military strength. So he talks about these stories. And he says, there have been instances where groups, online Facebook groups, have been created for Black Lives Matter and white supremacists, that they even got them so riled up that they met on a counter-protest in Dallas several months ago. I was like, wow. Um, he talks about being anti-Islamic groups and pro-Islamic groups getting together and just pouring gasoline on it and inflaming it. In fact, he talked about this video that was being made, and he's doing this interview with this other guy, John Mark Comer, and he talks about this video that was made. And there is a concept um, called manspreading. Does anyone know what manspreading is? Because if you're doing this, men, um, you're offending people. Manspreading is simply men sitting there with their legs too far spread apart just like the name implies. But the video was a woman on a subway with a bottle of bleach pouring it on the crotch of men. Because the idea is you're sitting there with your male privilege and your male pride, and she was kind of, in the name of feminism, speaking out and representing the oppressed woman. And the interviewer goes, well, wait, 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 wait. What, where was this video? And he goes, well, that's the thing. It was a ubiquitous video, not sure, but what they came to find out, it was, was created by a foreign agent in St. Petersburg with this sole intention of capitalizing on the feminist movement already and dividing the lines further. What the whole point of soft power is, it's to persuade people, whether it be positively or negatively. So the idea that a country is strong just because they have a huge military isn't as influential as the ability to just pour gasoline on an already volatile situation. And it's just intended to sow seeds of discord and division. And it's working. This is what it means to have soft power. And I think Jesus Christ represents the king of the kind of soft power that we have. Now, let me just ask you another question, because when we talk about this kind of influence, think about it on your own personal terms. Have you ever been attracted to someone romantically that might not had the most beauty in the world, that there was something about them that drew you to them? Have you ever been in a situation where maybe the person that you respected the most wasn't necessarily the most outspoken or the most educated, but they seem like their words were fewer and wise. We can think about people categorically that we've been drawn to that don't necessarily have the highest degrees or the, the, the most amount of success, but there was something about their character and their nature that sort of drew us in. This is what we're talking about with the kind of soft power. And so uh, when, when my point in all of this is I'm simply suggesting that you are more powerful than you know or realize. And if Christ lives in us, that same power is available to us to bring the kind of disarming, gentle nature that Christ had. So you have all the power in the world to mend a relationship. You have the power to forgive. 
you have the power to come alongside someone in the midst of the divorce and be a source of life and encouragement. You have the power to comfort someone who's grieving. This is the kind of power that the gospel talks about, and that's what makes it good news. It doesn't erase the problems, but it gives hope in the midst of them. And this is the kind of power we need to move toward. This is the kind of power I think we as Christians need to step into and think about leveraging. I loved C.S. Lewis's quote when he talked about humility, because humility seems like a nice thing, we just don't know how to get to it. But he described humility as not simply thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Come on now, that sounds powerful. And this is the kind of thing that we see modeled in the life of Jesus. Uh, and, and so what I want to do at, <clears throat> in these weeks leading up to uh, Easter Sunday is I'm doing a series called The Dirt Underneath Jesus' Nails. And it's the idea that we can relate to the humanity of Christ, not simply because, oh, he's divine, but because he has walked in our shoes and he's trustworthy in all of these things. And so this is the picture that we have um, and, and that we're invited into. And so I wanted to kind of look at some of the stations of the cross leading up to his crucifixion. And the second station of the cross is Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Judas becomes one of the most famous or despised characters in history because he betrayed Jesus. But he also became a haunting reminder for Christians because we, like Judas, I think also fall victim to temptation. And Jesus comes along, and, and, and this is what's important for us. Jesus doesn't get a pass at life on earth just because he's the son of God. Jesus understands betrayal. He understands disappointment with people. He understands duplicity and being two-faced. He understands the kind of hurt inflicted on peers, uh, uh, by our friends, by those in our closest circle. He limps through life just like we do, and yet still has things he has to get done. This is the life of Christ, and in all the humanity, he can relate to everything you're experiencing. Even if you're going through life with a sort of relational, emotional limp, he's like, I get it. He, this guy was in my inner circle, and he betrayed me. And this is what we find in the humanity of Christ. Now, let me just say this about conflict. Conflict is the most natural thing in all the world. God never intended us to see eye to eye on everything. And I hope this gives your marriage new life. There is a way to disagree and sort of fight fair or to stay in bounds. When conflict get reduced down to accusations and name calling and veiled threats, you're out of bounds. There's no solution in that. But the point that I'm trying to make is this is that it's what we do with our hurt. It's what we do with our offense that gives the gospel potentially the power to transform our hearts and our minds. We have that response, just like Jesus did in all his humanity. How would he respond to Judas? Let me ask that a different way. How will you respond to the Judases in your life? My guess 
is there might be some faces that are rolling through your mind about people who you have a hard time with, who might, and without their even knowing it, or maybe with their malice intent, have hurt you, have wounded you, have spurned you. What do you do with your hurt? What do you do with your disappointment with people? People that are close to you. What do you do with your feelings of betrayal? And this is the humanity of Jesus on full display. Now, a few weeks ago, I meet in a men's group on 7 a.m. on Wednesday mornings, and we've been going through the book of Luke. We've been crawling through the book of Luke for the better part of a year. But the conversation is always rich. Um, But a couple of weeks ago, we were reading through this passage, Luke 22, and it was talking about Judas's betrayal. And here's something that either I knew and forgot or never paid attention to. Listen to this, Luke 22, four and five. And Judas went to the chief priests and discussed how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. I don't know how I missed this or how I forgot this, but Judas went to them. They didn't come and bait him. I don't know why that stood out to me in such a profound way. I could only speculate. Maybe Judas was more concerned about popular opinion and the establishment, and and maybe some of the the people who were being threatened. Maybe Judas was just a late adopter. He needed more convincing, you know, in the sort of level of acceptance. There's there's sort of the early adopters, which are like 2%, and then there's like the late adopters, and then there's the never adopters. Maybe he was one of those. Or maybe he was starting to feel insecure, feel slighted, because there was actually these concentric circles around Jesus. There was the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, there was the three, you know, James, John, and Peter who got to go up to the mountain of transfiguration and left the other nine below. Or, or maybe, maybe he was just feeling like he was not as in as he wanted to. Whatever the reason was, Judas betrayed Jesus, who was a part of that inner circle. Now, let me just say a word about betrayal. Betrayal or hurt always starts with as simple as an expectation was not met. And oftentimes that expectation, that hurt is entirely justified. So I'm not trying to invalidate any kind of offense or hurt that you might be feeling, but we have to recognize it for what it is. And and again, it's our choice, how we respond to that hurt that either becomes a catalyst for transformation or a cancer. This is what it amounts to when we deal with debilitating relationships or conflict resolution. Will it become a catalyst or will we allow it to be a cancer? And if it becomes a cancer, then we're just going to limp our way through life. And even though we might change a job, maybe we'll change a neighborhood, maybe we might change a marriage, we'll still be left limping along if we don't resolve to heal that hurt or that wound. It sticks with us, regardless of if the faces change. But the power of the gospel is that it can transform when we learn to name it, and we learn to own it, and then we can steward it. That's that's really what we're talking about. So then Judas shows up in the garden. It's the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, just outside about a 15-minute walk. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and he appears to him, uh, and he says these words, when Uh, 
when he was still speaking, a crowd came up and, and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Judas, Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? He asked this you know, great and famous question about being betrayed with a kiss. Now, here's what's really interesting and maybe what we miss in light of this, because someone as wildly popular as Jesus was going to be recognizable. Think about it. They had just celebrated Palm Sunday when he came triumphantly entering on, on the donkey and they're laying down palm branches and they're taking off coats and it's like this royal procession. People were really excited at Passover with the idea of this triumphal entry. So what do the, the chief priests, what do the leaders do? They wait till Passover after sundown and everyone's eating dinner and they're outside of the city walls. This was their chance. Because if you were to grab Jesus in broad daylight, there would be a resistance. There would be a reaction and a mob against the establishment. But they also were doing it when everyone was distracted. It would be like saying, I'm gonna have my kid's birthday party right in the middle of the Super Bowl. And you're like, we've already got plans, please don't. But trying to do something when everyone is focused on this thing, when, when they're doing this. So they were working very deliberately to crucify him with sort of a hung jury. Does that make sense? And this is how this thing starts to unfold. And so I would simply say it this way, hurt that we have, however justified, hurt that gets left unattended becomes a walking wound. And it's something that we have to manage. And we have a choice. Either we remain permanently vulnerable, like a magnet, we will begin to attract more offense because now we have this new vulnerability. Or we can begin to deal with what it is that we feel hurt, misunderstood, or betrayed by. But the gospel means, and this is the good news, the gospel means that, that transformation is always within reach. It means that whatever our feelings of despair, this is actually the most fertile soil for God to do a new work. And oh, by the way, reconciliation, healing, always requires faith, right? There's a story that maybe um, you might or might not be familiar with, but the story of a man by the name of Viktor Frankl. He wrote one of the popular, most famous books of all time called Man's Search for Meaning. And what's amazing about him is his story. Viktor Frankl developed uh, a... Um, a counseling philosophy, a psychological philosophy that a person finds healing through meaning. And so he started a counseling practice, or he started teaching at the University of Vienna in 1930. Think about what was happening in Vienna and that area of the world in 1930. He starts this practice, and then by 1938, he opens his own practice. But then the Nazis invade, and they say that he's only allowed to treat um, Jewish patients. So he starts to form this own practice. But even at the risk of his own life, he is now giving diagnosis of mentally ill patients to save them from euthanasia, because that was what the Nazis were doing at this time. 
Now, around 1939, he has the chance to leave for the United States. He has the chance to get out of the country and everyone could see the gravity of where this thing was going. He chose to stay and he chose because he had two elderly parents and he had a new bride. But within a year, he gets sent with his parents and his wife, Tilly, to a concentration camp. And before they go to the concentration camp, she was forced to abort her, their expecting child. And this is where they get sent. Well, within the year, his dad dies. And then within three years, they get separated. His mom and, and um, Tilly end up at Auschwitz and he gets sent to a Dachau labor camp. Mom shows up to Auschwitz and because she's elderly, they send her directly to the gas chambers. And Tilly, within, a couple, within two years after that, dies. He's now at this labor camp and finally gets delivered. So now it's about 1945 or 1946. He makes his way back to Austria and he discovers what's happened. He knew his father had passed away. He learned about his mom. He learned about his wife. And it was for a year that he sunk to the depths of despair. Keep in mind, when he was at the labor camp, he started an underground psychiatric service for suicidal um, um, prisoners. He had to practice what he preached even as a fellow prisoner of war. But now that he had, the war had ended and he learned all of this, he now was sinking to the point of despair and it went on for a year. Like death just seemed like a better option. This world is not living with. Now, none of us have experienced that level of pain and of loss and victimization, but we all carry with us the kind of, the kind of hurt and harm that can become terribly cancerous. Here's what he does, though, after a year, is that he starts to, to, to kind of size up what's going around, and he returned to work, and he wrote this. He said, despair is suffering without meaning. If there is meaning in life at all, then there must be meaning in suffering. One more time. Despair is suffering without meaning. But if there is meaning in life at all, then there must be meaning in suffering. When we say yes to Christ, what we're not saying yes to is, is an easier road. What we're saying yes to is the hope for new life. We're saying hope for healing, hope to be comforted, not comfortable. We're saying yes to a kind of way of life that gives us the potential to grieve, to, to, to heal, and to overcome, even in the face of adversity. And it was within that time, he took the next nine days, and he wrote, Man's Search for Meaning. Nine days out of personal experience. I think that's such a powerful testimony of what we do when we face Judases in our lives. Jesus did. And Jesus, in all his humanity, could have been crippled by that moment. This was what he was staking his whole legacy on, was these 12 men and a few family members. That the, that the church would be born, that the gospel would go forth, and it would reach every part of the world, starting with my own heart. And so Jesus gets on the operating table and leaves himself bare to say, surgery begins with me. And while this person has let me down, has betrayed me with, a, with a, a, an expression of affection, 
with a hung jury and a lynch mob, he says, no. And so Jesus gets completely moved by faith. That is, I'm going to trust you, Lord, when I can't control these circumstances. I'm going to obey even though it feels awful. And I'm choosing the way of love because that's your way. That's not my way. And what I'd like to suggest to us is Jesus' suffering for meaning. Jesus' suffering has meaning for every one of your experiences. Jesus' suffering has meaning for every one of your relationships, good and bad. This is the dirt under his nails. He gets our humanity. And he didn't just take a pass because he was the son of God. He absorbed it. He absorbed even the betrayal and the threats of his accusers out of love. And so I would simply remind you that you are more powerful than you know, even when you feel out of control. This is the gospel. This is good news. This is the light breaking forth in darkness. And so I think reconciliation confronts all of us simply because people let us down. But to choose not to forgive, um, but to take on, uh, excuse me, the truth only cripple us. And it, it's like choosing again to live with a limp rather than go through the rehabilitation or the, the healing work. So I want to do this. I want to end in a time of prayer and give you some chance for examination. There is a verse that I think we are invited, if not called, to deal with. And it's a prayer of examination. Not the one where we pray out of Psalm 139, search my heart, O God. But in this prayer, Paul challenges these young believers at a church at Corinth with these words. And I'm just going to invite you to uh, just bow your heads and pray. Um, close your eyes. And I just want you to allow the Holy Spirit to sort of reveal maybe areas that have been corrupted in your own life. And they, and they might even be justifiable. But I do not want you to walk out of here with the cancer of betrayal, the cancer of hurt, the cancer of disappointment with people chronically and say we can walk in not only liberty, but we can walk as agents of healing ourselves. Judas lived with Jesus and sat at his feet learning from him for years, but his heart was never transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he fell away. And what we're talking about is being in covenant with Jesus. We're told to examine ourselves to see if we're truly living by faith in the Spirit, because this doesn't feel sometimes humanly possible. So listen to the words that the Apostle Paul writes. He says, test and evaluate yourselves to see whether you are in the faith and living your lives as committed believers. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves by an ongoing experience that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test and are rejected as a counterfeit. The point is this. If we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and our minds about the offenses that we carry, about the hurts that we nurture, then we are living with the cancer of darkness. And he says, I have come 
to bring life and life more abundantly, you don't have to survive. You can thrive. Father, I pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would sow seeds in our heart that we would learn to name our offenses, name our hurts, name the people that have disappointed us. I pray that we could own those and learn to take responsibility for watering the wound. But I pray that you would help us to leverage or steward that in a way that allows for your gospel to transform our hearts and our minds, that you might create in us a new normal that feels like freedom and not bondage, that feels like forgiveness and not resentment, that feels like a new day and a new life. So help us to be pruned. Help us to have the strength to come clean. But I pray for your renewing work in our own hearts and minds. I'm just going to allow you to just sit and meditate. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you about a name or a face or a conversation. And I would encourage you to not move past it. I want the gospel to take up root in your hearts and your minds and in your conversations and in your relationships so that it can have the transformational work. Let the gospel of Christ, the power of God within you, be a healing agent.